So today what we're doing, we're continuing in this message series called The Beautiful Way. And what we've been doing is we've been journeying through uh, this passage in the Bible called the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew. It's about three chapters long. And it's really one of the most incredible, life-changing and challenging passages in all the Bible. And it's amazing because what we have here is we have Jesus, who is really the center of everything we do, say, want to be here at the well. He's, he's really the one who wrote the Bible using human authors. He's even called the Word of God in Scripture. And he is actually unpacking the Bible for us in Scripture. To him, it was the Old Testament. But he's showing us what it really meant. You see, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, what he does, he talks about these beatitudes, like these attitudes and characteristics that define people who follow him. And now in the rest of, of the sermon, he's talking about the lifestyle and the conduct that flows out of those kind of characteristics. Right now, Jesus is talking about a number of issues from the law. And the law was like the, with the Old Testament commandments that God gave to his people, the Israelites. And what, what Jesus is doing he's, is he's taking these and he's saying, you know, you've heard the religious elite, the teachers, the scribes talking about it, but they're not really getting at the heart of the law. You've heard it was said, but this is what God really meant. So he's kind of digging deeper into what the law truly intended. Because what had happened is the scribes, the teachers of the law, they had taken this law, and what they had basically done, they had interpreted it, viewed it, taught it, added on to it as a purely physical outward set of rules to be fulfilled in a physical way. Basically, you do these things, you don't do these things, and you're good. You're good with God, you're good to go. And what they basically did was they tried to set themselves up so that they could just do this certain number of things and they'd be good. And they put a lot of effort into it. And they looked good. They knew it and they wanted to flaunt it. I mean, these people were highly respected and admired because, my goodness, look at all this stuff they do. In those days, like, they wouldn't have baseball cards, but they might have, you know, teacher of the law cards, you know, rookie for Hillel or something. Yeah, that, that joke fell flat. Okay, so what Jesus does, he comes along and he blows it all up. He says, you know, you see all this stuff that the teachers of the law are doing? <laughs> if you want to be right before God, you're going to have to do a lot better than that, which was scandalous. He says, the point is, the law is not just a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. See, your heart, your mind, your attitudes, your attitude all matter to God. In fact, when he starts talking about these, he's saying that, you know, attitude, it actually equals it carries the same weight as the actions that it, that it leads to. So Jesus comes and he kind of reorients their view. He says, I'm not saying the law doesn't matter. What he actually does is his teaching elevates it exponentially. See, what the law basically did was it showed two things. It showed who God is and who people are. And in that, it showed there's a huge gap between the two. But then Jesus came along and he said, it's not just huge, it's actually impossibly huge. Because what you need to be right with God is not just doing a list of do's and don'ts. You need a pure heart. And sidebar, no one has a pure heart. We've seen that in a number of different things here about anger, lust, dishonesty, relationships. If you have any doubts that Jesus is kind of painting an impossible task, check out this little gem of what the law requires uh, in Matthew 5:48, just a little bit later, it says, "Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect." Oh, so that's all. Enjoy that homework. Let me know who passes that test. So, so what are we supposed to do with all this? Like, well, thanks 
for the encouragement, Josh. That's, that's really great. So we're just reading this with this sense of dread. Nobody else can really reach this goal. And I mention that for two reasons. One, we can only understand the good news that we talk about all the time if we understand how bad the situation was before. And secondly, as we read the Sermon on the Mount, it is so important for us to understand it and apply it and to read it in light of and fueled by a relationship with Jesus. See, when Jesus was was giving these words, he wasn't just talking to a general audience. He was speaking to his disciples, people who had chosen to follow him. And when when he's talking to them, before he gets to this point, what he says is this. He says, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. So to those who who are following him in relationship with him, he's saying all these impossible standards we're talking about, I'm going to fulfill those. And, you know, you can't find right standing by doing all that stuff. The only way you can find right standing is by a relationship with me. And I say this because as a Christian, what I have done is you basically look at the Sermon on the Mount. What you like to do is try to make a new set of laws and rules that we have to follow in order to be right before God, to earn his acceptance. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 you get right with God by having a relationship with me. And I'm going to show you all these teachings, not because it's how you earn God's approval, but it's how... We show that we honor him. It's a way to bless him. It's a way to live the best way possible. They're still extremely important, but it's not how we get a right standing with God. So in view of that, we're going to turn to the next passage that Jesus talks about, and it talks about revenge, payback, retaliation. And to be honest, when I started reading this, I thought, I don't really have a problem with revenge. I mean, to be honest, whenever I think about revenge, my mind immediately goes to movies, I think about revenge movies, I think, great, someone's kidnapped Liam Neeson's daughter again. You know, those Taken movies. Have anybody seen those? I think there's like eight or nine of them by this point. Uh, but really, it's, it's a theme of so many stories in our culture today. Whether it's old ones like Moby Dick or The Count of Monte Cristo, more recent movies like Gladiator or John Wick. I think somebody killed his dog, and so he's just going to, like, destroy all of them. Um, even Westerns. Anybody here watch Westerns? Am I the only old man in the house? Oh, we got a couple. All right. Every Western is basically based on a premise. Somebody's getting revenge on someone else. Either it's the railroad, either it's an oil tycoon, a bank owner, horse thieves, the natives. That's basically the story every time. Even one of my favorite childhood movies, The Princess Bride. Somebody else has got to see The Princess Bride. If you haven't seen it, don't be fooled. It's a very masculine movie despite the title. There is a very compelling revenge subplot, which is encapsulated in the timeless line, I am Indigo Montoya. You killed my father. Anybody prepared to die? That still gives me chills. Uh, But in my own life, there was one time that I did get a little sucked into revenge. Um, It was in college. Water break. There we go. And uh, senior year of college, our sister dorm, or our sister apartment, came and they did a raid on our apartment. I don't really remember what exactly happened. I think there was a flurry of ping pong balls, a lot of yelling. That's really beside the point. But what we decided was after the fact that we had to defend our honor, obviously. So like any good payback, we couldn't just pay back you know, equally. We had to up the ante a little bit. So we got our six minds together, 20-something men at the peak of their college education, we came up with a beautiful 
elegant scheme. We're going to make something that stinks and put it in their room. Pretty elaborate. So what we did was we took every noxious substance we could find and put it together. We had fish sauce, onions, tuna juice, raw eggs, expired milk, oysters. We mixed it all together, let it sit, and a miracle happened. Apparently, you get enough bad smells together, it completely neutralizes and smells like nothing. So that didn't work out. So we went back to the drawing board. We just got a bottle, a gallon of milk, stuck it on the fridge, let it sit there, and we forgot about it for a month. And then another couple months. And then it was getting close to the end of the school year. We forgot about it completely. And then we never clean up our apartment. But then one of my apartment mates, who shall be re remain nameless, but a little hint, he pastors a church in Nashville, New Hampshire that meets in a gym. He decided, you know, I'll take that and I'll just dump it in our toilet, in our bathroom, which was a room that was known for having no ventilation. So basically, we smelled that milk for a couple months uh, until we ended the school year. So it kind of backfired. So it might not be a master at revenge. But when I started reading what Jesus was really saying here, I realized he's getting at something much more personal, much more internal, mundane, and common. Something that I can recognize in my own heart. He's rooting out and challenging a general perspective on oneself and how one approaches life in general. Because maybe you're like me. I basically tend to view my life uh, like I'm the center of the universe. My needs, my rights, my honor, well, they're of the utmost importance, and they, de they demand to be defended. Now, Jesus' message, I'm going to tell you right now, it's incredibly difficult, uh, and it's tremendously countercultural, and it's very nuanced. Um, one commentary referred to the passage as, and you can throw this up, Grace, it's the highest point of the Sermon on the Mount, for which it is most admired and most resented. Nowhere is the challenge of the sermon greater. <clears throat> Nowhere is the distinctness of the Christian counterculture more obvious. Nowhere is the need of the power of the Holy Spirit more compelling. So, Scott, you lobbed me a nice, easy, slow pitch here. Uh, but the, the fact is I don't want to interpret what Jesus is saying as something he didn't intend it to say, but I also don't want to lessen the impact of what he's saying. So let's jump in to the passage. Uh, we're going to read through it right now. Uh, it is Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42. And it says, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, Jesus here is referring to something called the lex talionis. It was the law of retaliation. And it's found in a few places in the Old Testament, um, one of which is in Leviticus, and you can throw that up as well. And it said this, anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Now, to us, to me, it seems barbaric. I mean, it seems very harsh. Like, it just seems like something that, that, that doesn't make sense. But, but in those days, it was actually deemed the most just form of punishment possible. And what it was intended to do was to limit revenge, keep people from being vigilantes, to keep violence from escalating among God's people, and to prohibit judges from giving out punishments that were disproportional to a crime. Basically, it was a restrictive law. And what it did was it set the maximum punishment for a crime. See, God, even hint then, wanted to limit 
and restrict bitterness and vengeance from being in the hearts and minds of his people. He wanted to deal with crimes quickly with clear consequences. You know, in those days, it was a bit like the Old West. You know, you cost me uh, a tooth. Well, I'm going to smash all the teeth out of your face. Actually, I'm going to do it to your whole family. It'd be like an Appalachian family reunion. But, you know, it's not that different for us today. When we're wronged, we want to we hit back. But we don't want to hit back on an equal. We want to we up the ante a little bit. You know, if, if we get hit, we want to hit back harder. If they insult us, we want to insult them even worse. It actually reminds me of one of my favorite movies growing up. I know, I talk a lot about movies. Uh, the Sandlot. You could toss the picture up there. Anybody familiar with these guys? Yeah, right? Reminds me of a scene, Ham, the, uh, the handsome young guy to the left here. That actually resembles me when I was a child. And he's, he's having an argument with this kid named Phillips. He's from a rival baseball team, and they basically get in this argument, and they swap insults. And it goes something like this. Watch it, jerk. Shut up, idiot. Moron, scab eater, butt sniffer. You eat dog crap for breakfast, geek. You mix your Wheaties with your mama's toe jam. You bob for apples in the toilet, and you like it. And then there was the pinnacle. You play ball like a girl. Mic drop moment. Boom. Now, it's kind of a goofy example, but we're the, we're the same way. I'm the same way. We don't want to just get even. We want to get even plus. You know, you started it. I'll end it. And the point is, Jesus uh, is saying when this law was given, it was given to the judges. It was given uh, to the, the legal system. It wasn't meant for individuals. But in Jesus' day, what had happened was the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, had started saying, you know, we're going to take this law from the proper, proper sphere of judges, and we're going to move it into an individual realm. They allowed and even recommended that it should be done on a personal level. People should take matters into their own hands. In fact, it was a right. It was your honor to actually take revenge against other people. And it actually began to encourage the exact same that God was trying to eliminate, personal vengeance. And then into this culture, Jesus drops this. He says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now, we need to take a moment here and stop because we need to figure out what Jesus is and is not saying when he makes this statement. Because this statement has been taken a hundred different crazy ways in, in the past. Some people have said, well, this means that Jesus is saying we shouldn't have a police force, we shouldn't have any sort of national defense, we shouldn't have any governments. Even, there was even this talk of this one person long, long ago who was, who was getting bitten by lice. And he says, I can't, I can't flick the lice off because that would be to resist evil. Let's get at what Jesus is, is really saying here. Now, Jesus isn't against justice. He isn't advocating anarchy here. Other parts of scripture make it very clear governments are established by God to punish those who do wrong on the earth. So what is he actually getting at? He's not saying you shouldn't protect your family. He's not saying we should just be cool with evil running rampant in the world. Jesus is all about perfect justice. What he's saying is that there is a place for right judgment. And that's not in your own hands. What he's talking about is not how to run a country. He's talking about how to run your own life. That's a hard enough thing to do. He's talking about personal offenses, personal grievances. When those that you do life with every day, when your people you're closest to wound you, and we all know that the people who are closest to you can hurt you the worst. So he's saying, how do we react to people when they hurt us? 
And he's saying, don't get caught up in this personal vengeance, this personal retaliation when your personal dignity, pride, possessions are infringed on. He calls it to something that is completely opposite our natural inclination. And then what he does is he gives us four little uh, word pictures, illustrations of what this looks like, the response that he's calling us to, what that looks like. And we need to be clear, these aren't meant to be inclusive directives on every situation we come into. This is not a, a mathematical formula for how to live our life. But what he's doing is he's painting us a picture of the kind of mindset, the kind of perspective we're to have when we're personally wronged. So we're going to go through these one at a time and kind of unpack what he's talking about. The first one, he says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now, I think this is best done with, uh, with an illustration. So Scott, if you can come up here, that'd be great. He left. Okay, fantastic. Never mind. Uh, but what he's basically talking about here is his original audience would, would realize that getting slapped on the right cheek is, is not so much a, a physical assault, but it's getting slapped with the back of the hand. It's a deep personal insult. So he's not so much talking about someone getting beaten up. The gist here is that when you get insulted deeply, Someone talks behind your back. Someone trashes your name. You get slighted. You get disrespected. Don't respond in kind. See, don't repay back with an insult or a slight of your own. You don't even have to defend your good name. Instead, he's calling us to endure it patiently. See, don't pay them back what they deserve. And if we're looking at the teachings of Jesus, we see that for him, Attitude equals action. So it's almost like he's calling us into a place where we start not even desiring to insult back. And we find that hard to stomach. Jesus continues. He says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. I struggled with this section. What was Jesus saying? Now, to Jesus' audience, they would have recognized that under Jewish law, it wasn't even allowable to take someone's outer coat. You could sue for their shirt, but... You couldn't take the coat. It was, it was basically saying you have to leave someone something to cover themselves with. So in essence, what Jesus is saying is someone is demanding from you some material possession. You give beyond what's asked. You give what they're not even allowed to ask for. Now, I notice here that Jesus doesn't talk about whether the person who's suing you has a right to sue you, like if you actually owe them something or not. And maybe that's because that's not really the point. It's a hard teaching to grapple with. I'm not going to lie. But it's a picture of Jesus calling us to, to hold our possessions lightly. And even some of our self-perceived rights. We have to have a heart to give to one who opposes us what they don't even deserve to ask for. And as extreme as that sounds, there's more. He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And it kind of loses a little something with us for us 2,000 years later. I mean, when's the last time that someone forced you to go walking? You know, except for a pet or maybe a spouse. Honey, I love going on walks with you. Trust me, it's great. Um, I actually did think back to when I was a kid and my dad would force us to go on hikes. It might not seem like much, but for a rotund, uh, slow, sweaty kid like me, trucking down and then back up the Grand Canyon seemed like more than a slight injustice. Uh, but to the Jews at the time, this would have struck a very raw and sore nerve. See, in this time, the Romans were in power in, in Israel. And they'd basically taken the power over from the Jewish people. They used to have their own nation, but now they were subject to these Romans. And the Jews hated it. 
They were longing for the day where they can get out from the control of the Romans. And in those days, there was a law that said Roman soldiers were allowed to force a civilian to carry their gear for one mile, but only one mile. That was the max. They could basically be voluntold to help them out. And what that's basically doing is adding salt to the wound, having to, like, carry the burden of your enemy. So Jesus knows this is a sore spot, and he sounds like he presses on a bruise. He says, you know what? Don't just comply with this request, but voluntarily cooperate far beyond what you asked or what you're required to do. It's like your boss forcing you to stay half an hour after work without pay, and you're like, you know what? I'll stay an hour. What? I mean, it's, it's an, a show of extreme humility, the ability to hold our rights lightly. And it takes immense generosity, which is echoed in the last little illustration Jesus gives. He says, give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. It's a bold statement. It is so broad. Seeing that those in your sphere of influence, your day-to-day, if they ask for something, show tremendous generosity. The teachings from Jesus are intense. They're counterculture, and they're about as opposite to my natural inclination as they can be. I mean, if you're not scandalized and a little shocked by how intense this is, I don't think you're paying attention. And all of this, honestly, all of this rubs me the wrong way. As I was studying it this week, I was like, Jesus, you can't actually be saying this. The amount of self-denial and selflessness that it requires is mind-boggling. I think it's especially hard for us today in 21st century USA. We are so blessed in our country. We live in a country where, one, we have a tremendous amount of rights. More than that, we know what they are. That's actually, you know, a saying that we throw out there. I know my rights. And I feel like that's actually used most when the thing that's being done is like the least legal. I, I was watching some YouTube videos and there was this one where this guy's like driving down the road on one of these drivable scissor lifts, sitting on two things of beer, drinking a cold one, and he gets stopped by the cops. And he's like, I know my rights. I don't think that's actually your rights. Um, but even in New Hampshire here, live for your die. You take my rights and you pull them out of my cold, dead fingers. My wife laughed at that, all right. Uh, Cold, dead fingers, that's good humor. Uh, It's ingrained in us to fight for what is ours, to stand up for our honor. If anyone dare tread on my rights or what's fair to me, I gotta defend myself. It's my duty to. And I found, being married, you find out a lot about yourself. Um, I found that this comes out most for me when I feel like I'm dealing with bad uh, customer service. Um, there's been a number of times when I've yelled out in our home, that's not how you run a business, which sidebar is why I love Costco. That is a great company. And can I, amen, that's the one thing I get an amen from in this crowd. That's good. Uh, they return anything. It's, anyway, I, I digress. My wife sometimes refers to Costco as my mistress, which I think is a bit extreme, but that's okay. But now I'm talking about other things. Um, <laughs> the point is, well, I want to say our society, but the truth is me personally. I am so prone to two problems. The first, self-righteousness and self-importance. You know, all in all, I'm a pretty good person, probably better than most. You know, I'm pretty important, and I deserve what's owed me. It's kind of our default setting. And the other problem that I think is so common is offense. We love to get offended. We live in, in a society that, that lives on offense, and it's something that's seen in the church 
and outside the church. If you have any questions, just check out a comment feed on Facebook. It is shocking. But Jesus here is setting up a picture of a life marked by radical humility and a lack of offendability. Now, again, we need to take a little break here because I don't want you to misinterpret what I'm saying or what Jesus is saying. The church, as Christians, we have to be concerned with justice. There are causes, there are situations where we need to step in, defend the vulnerable as the body of Christ. I mean, God's concerned for protecting the widow, the orphan, the undefendable. It's clear throughout Scripture. So we can't say we're never called to stand up for justice. That's not what we're saying. We play a role in that. The question becomes, what about when I'm the target? When it comes to my own personal offenses, my own personal assets being come after, my own personal reputation that's on the line, what's Jesus calling us to? Are we actually being called to personally be willing to suffer unjustly sometimes? More than we'd actually like to admit? Ask Jesus. He was willing to. Jesus isn't calling us to be doormats. To live in this way, it's a brave, courageous way of living. And the point is, if, it's gonna, if we're going to follow Jesus at his word, it's going to take a hit in the hardest, deepest part of us that is, is the most difficult to take it in, and that's our pride. Because the truth is, and you put this up, I heard this from a, from a pastor this week, it's much easier to act like a Christian than to react like one. That hit me pretty hard. Because what I have is I have a knee-jerk type reaction whenever I'm personally wrong to lash back. But Jesus here is inviting us into a different perspective for those who follow him to see what God's desire is for how we live our lives. How in the world can we live in this way? I've got a few thoughts. Actually, three. I was really excited. I can make an acronym. And then I got them all together, and it's spelled turd, which is very unfortunate. Uh, so I had to do a little reworking, so it says true. You're not going to remember it anyway. The only thing I remember from this message is turd. But, so we're going to jump in. Uh, the first thing I think we need to realize is that to live in this kind of a self-sacrificial way, we have to trust in God's character. See, to live like this, we have to requi- it requires that we trust that God is a righteous, sovereign judge who will perfectly deal out justice in the end. Because inside of us, when we're wrong, there's a cry for justice. I think that's put there by God. But the, the thing is, we desire to make the same error that Jesus' original audience did. We want to take that justice and put it into our own hands and take care of it right now. The problem is, um, like, if there is no God, if there's no God who's extremely good and just, then this life is all we have. And if we don't take care of evil right now, then evil wins. But if God will make everything right in the end, if he will set all injustices straight, if he will pay out vengeance where it's required in the end, then we can rest. And that's what we believe. It's then that we can, we can read a passage like Romans and take it to heart. It says there, Do not take revenge, my friends. But leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that was said to the Romans who were experiencing persecution. So the second point, for us to live like Jesus is calling us to, I think we have to remember our identity. 
You know, as followers of Jesus, to be willing to react this way, we have to continually remind ourselves that our identity, our value, our worth, it's completely defined by our relationship with Jesus. He owns us. So no matter what the world, our neighbors, our enemies throw at us, we're good. We're not controlled by those things. You know, everything that we can gain in this world, money, pride, reputation, success, our service, our rights, the world can take it away. But our hope can still stand firm. You know, Paul, uh, Paul one of the earliest believers, he wrote a lot of the, uh, the Bible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He said this, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. See, the truth is, and this is something that I have a hard time dealing with, when we choose to follow Jesus, we in a very real way choose a kind of death. That's what baptism shows. When we're going down in the water, we're dying, we're coming back to a new kind of life. We're putting a death to self, to this desire to put myself as number one, the iron-fisted cling to my rights. I think that's what Jesus is trying to get at in this passage. And when he tells his followers later, you can put this up on the screen, he said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. I mean, that's a hard pill to swallow. I mean, I know this verse very well. It's easy to stick it on, on Instagram with a picture of a sunset, but it actually means something very difficult. He's saying, you know, your comfort, your rights, your personal little kingdom, that's not part of the equation anymore. You're dead to that stuff. That pride you have, that pride that I have, you got to murder that every day. Any Patriots fans in the house? Of course there are. We're new, I guess. That's an, that's an easy thing to ask. Uh, there's a slogan they have. Anybody guess what that slogan is? Three words. Do your job. Do your job. Um, they've been doing their job very well the last few years. It's kind of sickening to a Seahawks fan. But we have this desire. I have this desire. I want to be liked by people. I want to defend myself. If people say something bad about me, I'd be like, well, that's not quite. That, that's not exactly who I am. Like, I... We have that desire in us. But what Jesus is saying is, do your job, and you know what? That's not your job. That's my job. That's a hard pill to swallow for me. You know, it does help to have perspective. The people that Jesus was talking to uh, in this time, and also throughout almost all of history, uh, and in a lot of the parts of the world today, the status quo for Christians is persecution, where they don't have rights. They get trampled on. They... It costs them economically, physically, maybe even their very lives. The only way that we can live this way is, is when we realize that Jesus' opinion is the only one that really matters for us. And that we are completely secure and satisfied in him. And the last one, the one that I had to change from define the enemy to understand the enemy. For us to live like this, we have uh, to realize that when we're wronged, we need to understand where the true battle lies. No, our enemies are not our true enemy. The ones who offend us, insult us, stab us in the back, they're not the ones we're fighting against. They're actually the ones that Jesus is calling us to fight for. 
Paul says it this way in another letter he wrote to the Ephesians. He says, we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities in this unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. And what he's getting at is we are fighting a battle, but it's a spiritual one. And those people that are out to get you, that drive you crazy in your sphere, Jesus is saying these aren't the people that you're battling. They're the people you're battling to save. And we have to see people with this mindset to live like Jesus calls us to here. When it comes to personal interactions, personal relationships, when we're hurt or injured, Jesus is calling us to allow selfless love rather than our personal justice to rule our response. As one commentary put it, he's calling us to look for the highest welfare of the other person in society, returning good for evil, willing to give the uttermost, his body, his clothing, his service, his money, insofar as these gifts are required by love. That's the only limit to the Christian generosity will be a limit which love itself may impose. I said it before throughout this message. This is an incredibly difficult teaching that Jesus gives us here. And honestly, if it feels impossible, I think you're starting to understand a little bit of the depth that he's calling us to. And I'm sure as I'm teaching, there could be a thousand situations that come up in your mind. Josh, what about this? And what, what about that? You can't, what do you do then? Because the truth is when real life hits, it's a challenge. Like where's that line between being foolish and irresponsible and allowing God to fight your battles on the other hand? Because again, Jesus is less handing us a formula for every situation. He's giving us a mindset and an attitude to take towards our entire lives. I'd love to be able to stand up here and give you a blanket statement on how to always respond to every situation you come across in which you find yourself personally wronged. That would be fantastic. Like when to step back and endure an injustice and when you need to make a stand in some way. But it's not that simple. Because every situation is different and I don't see that the text allows me to make such a general statement. But what I can say is this. It takes us back to the principle that I started with, that we have to view these teachings in light of a relationship with Jesus. Like when situations like this come up, we're in the heat of the moment, I think we're being called to seek Jesus' guidance in it. Ask the Holy Spirit, like, what would we have us do? It's an easy thing to say, but when I'm hurt, (laughs) the response goes from my head to my mouth or to my actions way too quickly. What we're being called to is we need to have a break in between to see, Jesus, how would you actually have me respond here? It's a high, difficult standard that Jesus sets for us. But we can't allow ourselves to lower it or to make it say something different just to make ourselves feel better or to make it easier on ourselves. I think as we really seek Jesus in these decisions, he's going to be drawing us more and more to make selfless decisions. So I'm going to close with a couple of thoughts here. Why? Like, why would Jesus give us such a high, difficult calling? And I think there's a few things that we need to consider. First, turning the other cheek, responding to insults with love, it has a strange way of kind of sometimes turning the tables. It can put the one being attacked in control. And the one who's attacking off balance can put the situation in a new light or maybe even reveal the injustices all the more. I think in recent history, the ability for this to happen is is seen probably most vividly and beautifully uh, in the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. 
who was a very close follower of Jesus. Now, he didn't pretend like what was going on uh, to African Americans in the U.S. was okay. He didn't make excuses for the evils going on, but he refused to take justice in his own hands and repay evil for evil. And the, US, uh, the racial situation in the U.S. changed forever because of it. And he said this. He said, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. You know, when we experience a wrong and respond in love, what happens is we take and transform a situation where we're forced to be a victim into an opportunity where we choose to be a servant. I think it's a beautiful thing. But more than that, I think the greatest reason Jesus calls us to this response goes back to a foundational issue for those of us who are following Jesus. What is the goal of our lives? Like, what's the final trajectory of our story meant to be? You'll hear various versions of the idea that God wants you to be happy, wealthy, and wise. And I don't think that that God is against us having those things. I mean, that would be to say that God wants us all to be poor, stupid, and miserable, which I don't buy that either. But these aren't the ultimate goal he has for our lives. His primary goal is that we become more like Jesus. The purpose of our lives, if we're following Jesus, is to be windows in the world to those around us of what God is like, of who Jesus is, what his kingdom's all about. If we just swap insult for insult, insist on always getting everything owed to us, how are we any different than anyone else? See, when someone insults you and you don't give them back what they deserve, that's a picture of God's mercy, how he's shown us. He's, He's not given us the judgment that we deserve for failing to meet the high standards that the law shows. See, when someone demands a payment from you and you give them more than they're even allowed to ask, That's a picture of God's grace to the world. Because he gave us what we didn't deserve. He gives us forgiveness and right standing with God because of our faith in Jesus and what he has done. And when you go that extra mile, think of the opportunities you have on that second mile. Why would you do that? You can share, well, this is what has been done for me. You know, one of the things I love most about Jesus, um, there's a lot of things. He never asks us to do anything that he hasn't already done in the most extreme and perfect way. That's why we celebrate Jesus here at the well, because he's the difference between despair and hope. Jesus is the difference between fear and victory, between death and the truest life. See, God knew that we couldn't keep the law that requires a pure heart. Nobody was good enough, and the result was a permanent separation from God. But God wasn't okay with that, because we were designed for relationship with him. And so we sent Jesus. Jesus lived up to that impossible standard. He came, he healed, he taught, and then he willingly gave up his life to experience the separation that he didn't owe that we did. See, he taught, turn the other cheek, and then he was arrested. He was slapped, he was punched, he was mocked, scourged, beaten. He was mutilated as an innocent man And yet he refused to fight back. He taught us, if someone wants your shirt, give him your coat as well. And then he was stripped of all of his possessions. He was stripped of all of his clothes. The soldiers who executed him gambled for them right in front of him as he was dying. He taught us, if a a Roman soldier demands you carry your gear one mile, go two. And then he willingly took a Roman military burden himself, the cross. And he walked all the way to the place where he died. He taught us to give to those who asked. And then he gave everything he had, body, blood, his life, 
for his enemies, when we were too self-deluded, self-righteous to know we even needed to ask for it. He died, he was separated from God for our sake, but then he rose to life again. And he did all of that to show us a love, a love that's capable of transforming enemies of God into friends of God. And that's what we celebrate here. Um, That by trusting in the work Jesus did, turning from our attempts to build our own kingdom, instead of, you know, turning to him, who's the one who calls the shots on our lives, by making that change, we're given a right relationship with God. We're given a friendship with God. And the band can come, can come up if they want. Um, for us today, for those who don't know Jesus, you're not walking with Jesus, maybe you're just here because you were invited, or maybe um, you're kind of kicking the tires on this whole faith business. That's the good news. And when we had nothing... Jesus came and he gave everything. And it's not about us living up to a certain standard or ideals to, to, to find right standing with God. It's trusting in what Jesus has done. And then he gives us the freedom to live a life that honors God. I know that followers of Jesus get this wrong a lot. Um, but don't let the imperfection of Christians get in the way of the perfection of who Jesus is. I invite, if you don't know Jesus, dig deeper into who he is. He'll change you. For those of us who are believers today, um, I'm not going to pretend to know all the answers on all that this passage is saying. It's the start of a conversation. But it's a reminder today of where our identity lies. Um, It's a challenge to seek Jesus for how we live day to day. A challenge to die to ourselves more every day. So we don't want to ignore or water down the teaching he gives us. We want him to transform us. Let's pray. Father God, um, I thank you, Jesus, um, that you are so good to us. Jesus, that you you do never ask us to do something you haven't already done perfectly. God, I thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice. God, that allows us to see the world and show others love in a way we never could before. God, this is a hard teaching you give us, God, but we, we don't want to ignore it. But I pray that we would truly be your body in this world, that we would show the grace and mercy that you have shown us. Thank you, God, for who you are. Thank you that you give us the opportunity to be a part of your family. We love you, Jesus.